Let's see if I can get this happening. We've all heard plenty of pandemic stories. It's not exactly news anymore. I, I guess that's the nature of things. Novelty plus time equals normalcy. <laughs> but just for one moment, try to remember those first days of lockdown back in the spring of 2020, back when the novel coronavirus was still novel. All right, let's do it, huh? Back before time had done its work, back when we were all wondering what to do with ourselves. And musicians particularly were thrust into a kind of existential crisis. It was undoubtedly... A setback for many. YouTube is live. Within about a week of locking down, pianist Emmett Cohen, along with his bandmates, drummer Kyle Poole, Kyle Poole on the drums, and bassist Russell Hall, Russell Alexander Hall, started to do live streaming shows every Monday night from Emmett's apartment wow, okay. in Harlem. Welcome, YouTube. This is Emmett Cohen. <laughs> At first, it was just the three of them set up in Cohen's living room trying to figure out the tech. Ouch. It was a little shaggy and homespun. <laughs> the guys dressed for the occasion as if it was a proper gig, and yeah, it wore a sport coat. They did it, it seemed, as much for their own sanity as for anyone else's. They did it because that's what they do. They play music together in space. It's who they are. There was something about those early live streams that captured people's attention. For one thing, Emmett and his trio were among the few who allowed themselves to get together, and they did it proudly and loudly. Yeah, we're live. You know, back in March of 2020, most New Yorkers were still wearing their masks on the street. Nobody knew anything about what could or couldn't yeah. be done. We hope you're all having a safe quarantine. And here were these three musicians, unmasked, bubbled up, I guess, <laughs> and playing together in the same room. Okay. <laughs> they did another live stream every Monday for months and months, and you can watch almost every installment on Emmett's YouTube channel. The series became known as Live at Emmett's Place. Welcome to Live at Emmett's Place. This recording that you hear is from the third week that they this did is it. This volume three. It was in early April of that year, and it got a few thousand streams on YouTube. Eventually, they started to invite guests to join them, singers, soloists, all kinds of people. And Emmett's Place became one of the spots, if not the spot, for live jazz in New York for a time. Six months into the thing, it had expanded into something almost as contagious as the virus that created the conditions for it to happen in the first place. Too soon? Well, then let's just say it caught on. For example, this performance of La Vie en Rose featuring singer Cyril May has over 4 million views on YouTube. What had been a setback for many was a step forward for Emmett. Novelty plus time. Welcome to The Third Story, I'm Leo Sidrin. I first realized that Emmett's place had caught on when my next-door neighbor in Brooklyn, a doctor who likes jazz, asked me if I had been tuning in every Monday, as he had been doing. And that's when I understood that these weekly gatherings of Emmett's had become something more expansive. It was, for a time, appointment programming for people. And all over the world, folks were tuning in. It was a form of self-care, of optimism, and of connection. Since then, Emmett's Place has become a kind of jazz incubator in New York. Featured guests have included jazz legends like Houston Person, Victor Lewis, Joe Lovano, Sheila Jordan, Randy Brecker, Regina Carter, Christian McBride, Nicholas Payton, and dozens and dozens more. Even past guests of this podcast like Benny Benack, the third, Tatum Greenblatt, and John Ellis have been up there. As of this recording, 
There are 95 episodes of Emmett's Place, but by the time you hear this, there will have been at least 96. All these musicians made the trip up to Harlem and then walked up the five flights to Emmett's Place. So Emmett Cohen and his trio emerged out of the pandemic with a kind of low-key celebrity that positioned them for greater success on the road. They got more famous by staying home and jamming on Monday nights on the internet. Emmett has one foot planted in the future and the other in the past. Maybe that's why he chose to call his most recent record Future Stride, a nod to the stride piano that he loves and the modern world in which he lives. That tension between those two impulses, the old school and the new school, is at the heart of the Emmett Cohen phenomenon. He's deeply rooted in the jazz tradition. He believes in the importance of oral history and intergenerational connection. Like when he was in his 20s, for example, which was not so long ago, he made a series of albums, live interviews and performances featuring jazz masters Jimmy Cobb, Ron Carter, Benny Golson, Tootie Heath, and George Coleman, and he called it the Master Legacy Series. But meanwhile, he's a total digital citizen. He was quick to embrace streaming, NFTs, crypto, direct-to-fan connection. He offers a subscription service to his fans to support his work directly. He's a product of the 21st century, and he understands how to thrive in both physical and virtual space. But given the choice, I chose to meet him in physical space, and I went up to Harlem, to Emmett's place, up the five flights of stairs, to talk to him about this experience and how he sees himself in the greater community of New York, of the music. His apartment looks bigger on the videos than it really is, and the piano takes up much of the living room. Spending time with Emmett Cohen, it's clear that he lives for the music, in the music, and with the music. But it's also clear that success for Emmett is as much a function of his willingness to play by both the new rules and the old ones, too. And while we're on the subject of the new rules, as a reminder, third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive. Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is where you go to give me your money. And wbgo.org slash studios is where you can go to pick up what my partners at WBGO are laying down. In our conversation, Emmett talks about the importance of the Midwest as a jazz musician. And in that spirit, I will tell you now that I'll be on the road in the Midwest in August playing drums in another very swinging piano trio with my dad, pianist Ben Sidron, and bassist Billy Peterson. We'll be at Crooners in Minneapolis on August 19th and 20th, Cafe Coda in Madison on the 23rd, the Atlanta History Center on August 25th, and the Green Mill in Chicago on August 26th and 27th. If you're nearby, come say hi. Here's me and Emmett Cohen talking it down at Emmett's Place in Harlem last month. Emmett Cohn, there's so many places to start. I will say, I really wanted to come into this space, as I'm sure a lot of people do, because you made it famous in the last two years. It's funny where certain spaces take on kind of like legendary status, but I think in this moment in the world of jazz in New York, like your apartment is one of them. Well, this is a welcome, welcoming place, I would say. So you're always welcome here. You play these gigs in your apartment, but then they live forever because you record them. Yeah, it's almost like we're going to the recording studio each week. Yeah. I always think about the pianist that I love, like Hank Jones, and especially Hank. He was the most recorded pianist of all time, hmm. and, and a lot of people regard him as having the best touch of all time as well. Yeah. I think that was due to the fact that he was always listening to himself back. And so it's been an important thing for us, I think, to be able to hear ourselves back in so many different contexts over the last 
two and a half, almost years now. I was on the train up here from Brooklyn, and I listened to that first record that you made back in 2011 that you recorded yourself, and then your most recent record. And I think a lot of things have evolved in a short span of time, but one of them is definitely your touch. The sound today, I hear a roundness in your sound today that I think maybe speaks exactly to what you're talking about. Yeah, I have some wonderful teachers to thank for that, um, especially spending time with, with Fred Hirsch, even, this is the master of touch. Um, and I had an interesting teacher at the University of Miami. His name was Doug Bickle. He used to play songs for me and, and just play the songs. And he had the best touch, and you could always hear that melody. And he told me, you know, it's, it's all about Bach. You know, the different voices move, and they have, they have, to, have to be brought out in different textures and different ways. Um, also Shelley Berg is one of my, my great teachers and he, uh, just always put the sound first. He's like, what kind of sound are you drawing out of the piano? I think it's like that, especially when I teach now, that is, that's the theme. It's like, what, well, what's important about being a musician? Well, basically only your sound mm-hmm. it starts with the sound, you know, you play one note can kill a, a whole room, you know, Houston person will play one note and it hit someone in the, in, 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 in the heart. I've seen it happen, you know. Every every night I'm playing with him. attribute some of this to teachers do you think sound can be taught uh sound can be learned and and felt and discovered in many different ways i feel like you know some people are taught it some people will live it some people it runs in the family and they just see it you know church classical music there's so many different avenues i think that everyone finds that's what makes music such a personal thing mm-hmm. you can find it in any corner of, of anyone's soul you know even if they're not really a traditional musician and that just makes it a greater discussion of artistry well let's talk about where you found it in the great heart of montclair new jersey uh yeah i was born in miami actually I lived there for 10 years oh did you you lived yeah, there that and then long we moved to new jersey yeah. when i was 11 yeah started middle school and did high school there mm-hmm. and then moved back to miami yeah. to go to to university of miami and then moved to New York 10 years ago and have been in New York for, for that long. Did you feel tied to Miami that whole time? Did you feel like you were like a kind of an exile after you left? Um, I was wondering about what it would be like to be there as an adult. You know, <laughs> I had such a child's memory of what it was. And so like put together a lot of pieces of my life. It was like a full circle moment to go there. And yeah. I think as a college, as an aspiring college student, I didn't really want to live in New York right mm-hmm. away because I knew it was the place I wanted to be. And I, I was like, let me go practice and, and live somewhere else that's not under this amount of pressure. Yeah. You know, you walk in the subway and see horrible stuff every time you leave the house uh, when, you're, when you're in New York. It's, it's a, something that hardens you. And, and I didn't feel like I wanted to experience that while I was experiencing college. I don't know much about Montclair, but the feeling I got just when I spent a couple of days there was like, oh, there's a lot of artistic people here. There's also like a tie to the jazz world. There are a lot of jazz musicians that live out there. Like, what did you find when you were coming up? 
for, for me, there were a lot of jazz musicians in town yeah. and a lot of artists and, and people who lived and worked in the city but wanted to live in the suburbs. You know, Stephen Colbert was living there. That and, great jazz uh, man, Stephen and, Colbert. Yeah, right. Well, he, he propelled John Batiste. Totally. You know, he, he did contribute to jazz in a big way, actually, which is maybe a Montclair tie. You never know. So I had a chance to meet a few different jazz musicians in the area. One of them down the street from me was the great drummer, Billy Hart. And Billy would call me up on Saturdays and be like, hey, ma'am, how soon can you be here? And I said, well, how about 45 minutes? And he's like, how about 20? I was like, okay, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And we'd go over to his house and uh, uh, he would need help with some technology or with his computer or something like that or wanted to wanted some advice about how to chop things up on GarageBand. Um, but I think on this particular instance, it was like I plugged back in the, the power to the wall and it turned on. <laughs> right. And uh, then it, 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 he just sat me down. We were watching jazz videos. Ahmed Jamal, I remember he had a whole table full of CDs, a whole shelf full of records and different books that some of the jazz masters love to read. And it just left me in his dungeon to kind of explore. And so that was an early formative experience in New Jersey, but also Christian McBride lives in town. I got to meet him very early and always aspired to be in his band. And he has a program that sort of mentors young musicians, right? Yeah, I kind of came up right before that. I was on like the the very beginning. It was this program called Jazz Connections. It happened at Montclair State in the summer times, and I was going there uh, since I moved. And the teachers they had there were like Tyshawn Sori and uh, Dave Stryker and, and Mike Lee from New Jersey. Uh, other people like that, and I got to spend the summer, a couple of weeks in the summertime, and kind of explore jazz a little bit. And uh, it was, it was that led into Jazz House Kids, and that kind of propelled a lot of different students. Um, but it was always something I was seeking out, you know, as as well as finding it was finding me. If you were doing that when you first moved, that means that you were playing already on a pretty decent level by the time you were ten years old. Yeah, I started taking classical lessons at three. You know, I was playing classical repertoire and yeah. going. Uh, one of the things I that I did when I started living in New Jersey was go to the Manhattan School of Music pre-college, studying classical piano. Classical piano was always a little stressful for me in that format, where you just had to play the whole thing with all the right notes, mm-hmm. <laughs> or else it was not right. And uh, that's that's a very hard thing to do, and takes a lot of discipline and a lot of practice. And I maintained that uh, through high school, but then after that. Um, became more of an improvising musician, but um, always revisit classical stuff. Parents must have signed you up for Suzuki before you had a chance to choose for yourself. You're three years old. Yeah, yeah, it was Suzuki piano. A lot of kids do that, and it's part of their development. It's just a part of a well-rounded, you know, background and basis for mental development and just a good childhood. You obviously took to it, though. Do you think your parents were surprised that you were so musical? I think that we have some musicians in the family, uh-huh. and so it was a, uh, the way I see it. Uh, uh, my dad's kind of dream, you know. I think he like would have liked to be a musician. He was a singer mm-hmm. um, in the '60s, and then changed professions. Uh, but to what? Was, uh, to psychologist. Same thing. Psychologist in anything. Could yeah, be exactly, exactly. And then we have a cousin. His first cousin. Um, his name is Greg Kogan, and he played with uh, Buddy Rich and Lionel Hampton, who's a great piano player. I had to meet, I got a chance to meet him a couple times, well, more than a couple times, but uh, for a certain period of my life, maybe when I was 16, I met him for the first time, and uh, 
you know, he came around and played and stuff. And I feel like it was an inspiration to me that there was another jazz pianist in this family who yeah. had done, done this stuff. Uh, he's no longer alive, but uh, and his father too was a Broadway musician. So there, there was there was definitely a history of musicianship in my family. Yeah. So I feel like that was a reason they they tried to get me started early, and I guess it 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 clicked. It clicked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't always click, but with you, it totally did. You were in it. I'm the guy that took piano lessons growing up that still plays the piano. <laughs> did you think about doing anything else at any point? No, it kind of just, everything just happened very naturally. Um, and I just kind of followed, you know, one opportunity to, into another and then college and then, you know, gigs started coming in. And, you know, I also went to Manhattan School of Music uh, for my master's. Yep. So that was a good transition into New York City where I still was still going to school and could pick up some opportunities when I got here. And then, you know, when I was in New York, just started going out every night to every single club. Yes. I would live uptown going to Manhattan School of Music and I would stop and smoke on 106th and then go down to uh, Dizzy's at 59th Street and then uh, go down to the Smalls in the Village and maybe it would be a Tuesday night. They would have a session at the Zinc Bar. And uh, there was so much going on when I first moved to, to New York. You know, now post-corona, it's it maybe may a different, you know, climate again. Um, but that, you know, that period was... Uh, you, I was able to go out to the clubs every night and, and just experience as much as possible. Started playing j sessions and uh, began to work a little bit and, and get some gigs in, um, in, in the city and then eventually out of the city. You don't play a lot of Hammond organ now, but I understand that there was a time when you were playing a lot of Hammond organ, particularly at Smoke, and that that was a big part of your, your life for a while. I wish I were playing more yeah. Hammond organ uh, but that was another thing. That was another New Jersey connection there. Uh, there was a club called Cecil's in West Orange, and uh, Cecil Brooks III, great drummer, he ran this club, and it was just a staple of the of, of the community there. Musicians like Bruce Williams and Freddie Hendricks were on that scene as well, and uh, I got a chance to go over there and play at the session one time, and realized there was no piano on the session; it was just organ. Uh, so he would let me come to the club after, after school and practice organ and I eventually got serious enough to, to get one. And so I had one, hmm. got one for my bedroom. And so I was playing quite a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, it's harder to maintain a Hammond B3 when you live in New York City. <laughs> uh, so I was playing at Smoke for a while, too. Yeah, we did that for about six years, almost every week. Did You, you didn't record anything as a B, on B3, did you? Um, there's a few videos yeah. uh, on YouTube and stuff, which I definitely consider recording and documenting. <laughs> That's really interesting, man, that you say that. You know, there was a time when musicians would go out on stage and the second anybody in the audience took out a camera, they would freak out. Like there's that whole generation of older cats who like, you know, were very averse to being recorded because it was a kind of form of, of exploitation that this stuff could be sold or whatever. You're coming up in a generation where everything can be documented. And this thing that you just said is really interesting to me that you see any form of documentation, whether it's a video on YouTube or an album that you release on a label as a recording. Yeah, we're in such a 
different time, you know, even with news publications, people get most of their news from Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, that's where people are looking and anyone can publish a, a piece of themselves on, on any platform now. You know, there's a little less power in the recording industry's hands, but, you know, it's also meaningful to record with the, with the label and, um, you know, do it a traditional way. And I think, you know, everyone has to look inside and see what works best for them. And that's what's beautiful about this time, that you're able to do things yourself and make things the way you want. I've been recently into NFTs as well and just other ways to reach uh, fans and build community through uh, through art. And I think that's a really important thing. That's basically the foundation of of Emmett's place is, is to make it a community thing, welcome people, musicians and fans, and whoever wants to, to, to come in and, and be with us. Yeah, let's talk about it. For so many musicians, when the pandemic hit, you know, the, the wheels came off the tracks. Like, what are we going to do? We can't go on the road. We can't, you know, every, all the plans came to a halt. There's no gigs, whatever. You are that rare person, artist, who kind of converted that chaos, that uncertainty into real positivity and real connection, as you say. And you built a community that I think maybe wasn't there even before. I mean, I read some stats today that said that you know, you had hundreds of people watching the videos at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's like in millions of people have watched these videos now, or millions of views have, have been racked up. I and mean, that's, that's a major. You're not just playing in the jazz space now. You're playing in the, you know, the YouTube social space now. What went through your head at the beginning of the pandemic? I think a big part of, of the community that we uh, formed started right here in Harlem. Um, and we were very lucky to be in a close concentration. Um, you know, my band members, Russell Hall and Kyle Poole, they lived down the street. We would carry the drums one block and up the stairs every week. Um, and, and, you know, there was not much going on, but we were still a, a tight-knit community of artists in Harlem, you know, during a pandemic. And uh, Benny Benack was over here. And, and these, these are some of the early guests that we had on the show. Tavon Pendicott, Bruce Harris lived right next door to Kyle. Um, there were so many artists. Michaela Marino Lerman, tap dancer, lived up the street. There were a lot of people who wanted to, to, to play music. <laughs> uh, but before that, I guess we started because, uh, because this promoter, uh, his name is Derek Kwan, he uh, is living in the Midwest. He used to work at Jazz Lincoln Center, and, and he, we were supposed to play at his, his venue, the Lead Center, one of those evenings. One of those first evenings, <laughs> March, early evenings. March 23rd. Yeah. And he said, you know, we're supposed to do this gig. It got canceled. Here's the full fee. You know, just make a live stream or do something that, you know, the world can see. And that really helped us uh, to just have the confidence to be like, let's just put some instruments in a room together and play. And it was on an iPhone. Uh, we just went live on Facebook and uh, got like over 40,000 views. And we were like, oh man, like people need this. It, it was born from necessity too. People really needed a place to come listen to some music. And so we decided to do it weekly. And uh, I think we went 12 weeks without repeating a song <laughs> as the mm -hmm. trio. And then we we're like, okay, I think we need some guests to yeah. spice this up. You know, the climate had changed a bit and uh, people felt a little more comfortable venturing out and so we started to have guests each week and uh, then upgraded the technology and have a friend Alex Weitz uh, who does five camera work in here and uses the ATEM switcher and then there's a sound man his name is Kelvin Grant 
and they're here every week and uh and and it's kind of like a community event here too and we just get together and and do a show have dinner um and it's been this beautiful way to for 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 me to host yeah and and, and just bring people together you know whether it's in the house and as i told you you're welcome anytime <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, but you know we're doing the show a little bit less now it's probably yeah. down to once a month or so after yeah. the summer um because i'm busy and because it's bothersome to the to the neighborhood <laughs> seeing something on what is essentially television you know it feels like you know on a screen you don't really see what it is you know i mean we know it's your place we understand it's an apartment and the, the angle that you shoot kind of suggests that it's a much bigger place than it is and also you know it's a beautiful looks great on camera but it's also totally your one bedroom apartment i mean the, the kitchen is right here right next to the piano is the refrigerator and the other thing is this is a five-story walk-up which means there's a lot of neighbors underneath you how do they f- feel about this weekly scene i think everyone was cool with it you know and and uh, the cops came one time uh, at the very beginning but but uh we, we were never really bothered but then somewhere along the lines the the neighbors are asking if this is going to continue forever uh, and so I think as a compromise, you know, we, we can, we can do one show a month or something like that. And, uh, you know, we made 94 documents as of this recording. Um, and I still have a lot of people who I want to bring in and who I want to make music with and understand their styles and concepts and try to, you know, experience a moment with, which is really what the show is about. Um, we just get together and try to experience a moment and play some tunes. You know, we we're, it's not like a full concert. We're talking be, between about what we want to do or what we want to play next. You know, keeping in a concert, but also just you know, it's not it's not too formal. How much preparation do you do before people come over? Everyone who we play with requires a different amount. Uh, you know, of of checking out music or or just winging it or learning a few tunes or maybe they don't say so I have to prepare you know a little outline or sketch of or what to do Some, sometimes we just get together and play and say nothing it's a good, it's good, it's always good to have a plan when you're turning the <laughs> turning the recorder on yeah uh, but each guest comes with something different Miguel Zanon had some some original music it's probably the the music I spent the most time in between weeks trying to learn and, and understand uh, and his music is beautiful. I think another aspect that I enjoy now is to try to make a big lexicon of all the standards. Mm-hmm. You know, you see uh, Ella Fitzgerald records all the tunes and, and Frank Sinatra records every tune. Ahmed Jamal has recorded so many songs and, uh, you know, put put their style on it. And for me, that's that's been a goal to record as many different standards and songs that, that we grew up playing or that, you know, people... Uh, learn in jazz school or that you know everyone who's not a jazz musician knows or anything like that you know I'm always looking to to kind of bridge all those gaps between all that stuff yeah I think that that is a there's a slight divide between some players who are very into playing standards and recognize the value of you know playing into the repertoire and then others who kind of avoid it for any number of reasons but I, I appreciate that you are keeping the 
those tunes alive and that a lot of the people that you're playing with are also really into that because I, I've noticed that there's a whole other kind of mode that people get into where they overtly do not want to play those tunes, be, maybe because they've been recorded so much and played so much. Yeah, and either choice or, or <laughs> anywhere in between is totally valid. And, yeah. and, you know, when people ask, I always say, you got to follow what you love, yeah. what you love to do. And, um, you know, we love to be repertoire players and all of my favorite you know, pianists, you know, learn all the stuff that they played to, you know, even if it's not standard, but it's jazz tunes. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if you love it, love the stuff, then you learn it. Um, and, and I'm lucky to be in a community of people who love the music. Yeah. Uh, Evan Sherman, Michael Muenzo, Joe Saylor, um, Russell Hall, Kyle Poole, Yasushi Nakamura, um, Benny Benack the third, Reuben Fox, the, the, the family extends, yeah. uh, Brian Carter, um, the, you know, played countless gigs with all of them discovering their favorite music and bringing yeah. it back and um, spending time listening to it together and then trying to perform you know music that we listen to in different in different ways and uh, through different avenues of expression so all that stuff prepared us I think to be able to do a concert every week and keep it keep it fresh and uh, we've learned a lot of material and have a lot of things to present with our peers even Alfonso Horn um, and so many others that we that we that we play with. Um, Do you find that people are looking to you now? Though, like you describe being into NFTs, get, getting into the tech a little bit more, looking for new ways to connect. I mean, you maybe represent you, you know, and a lot of the, the musicians that you refer to represent the sort of an, the next generation of how this music is going to stay alive and in, in life, given this new context. Right? I mean, the world is not what it was. 20 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly not what it was 100 years ago. For me, I see that side of everything being part of my creativity, an extension of, of my colorful palette of ideas that, you know, that may come to me in the music or how to present the music or what kind of concert we should put on. Or I try not to live by any barriers or rules. You know, it's nice to play at the clubs and everything, but, um, you know, I started a membership program on my website. It's called Emmett Cohen Exclusive. Um, and it's kind of like a Patreon-based thing where people can subscribe by the year, and they those are the people that get your albums and your CDs and everything, um, merchandise, when it comes out. And so that's been a great way to to find the people I know want to want to want to buy the the stuff that I'm putting out uh, rather than cutting a record and trying to sell it. You know, every time obviously you need to sell it, but uh, to have your people that, that support you, it kind of frees you up to think and and do different things. And I think NFTs will be a, uh, another way to document and, and put things in their place in history, which is what we do as artists and human beings. So on the one hand, I mean, I think you're very aware of where you are in the world, your place in history and how to connect in this moment. On the other hand, I know that you have been really focused on talking to older players, not only playing with older players, but also getting the information just through oral history from them, you know, that you valued these friendships and relationships with as many of the old masters as you could get close to. Yeah, I had a chance to be around some older musicians uh, sitting in with Joe Morello when I was in high school, who played with uh, Brubeck, of course, is on take five with the one-handed solo.
my cousin was playing with Joe Morello at that time and gave me a chance to sit in. Um, but there was, there was a story of, of playing with the Dizzy Band, the alumni band, and, and going to play the Kennedy Center one New Year's. And Jimmy Heath was sitting catty corner to me on the bus on the way down and just telling stories about Charlie Parker borrowing his saxophone and uh, uh, John Coltrane coming over his house for dinner and, and you know, all this, all this history that I felt rather than learned. You know, I felt like I was, I was absorbing what it had been like, mm-hmm. you know, rather than reading an official history book or taking a class in college. Or, um, it just immediately clicked as the, as the, the only path for me. Um, so I have tried to make friendships with as many of, of, the, of the musical masters as I can. And, uh, you know, I've gotten close with Ron Carter and uh, George Coleman, you know, Jimmy Cobb, we played with a lot, uh, Tootie Heath uh, is, is our spiritual grandfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there are so many others, too. Sheila Jordan, uh, she came over the house here, even climbed five flights at night. I was thinking about it when I climbed up here. I can't believe these old people climbed up these stairs, man. Casting the line blue of the moon will shine bright just one night. The time I first met you, you set my soul on fire. My hopes were for. I had you, and you had me too. Oh, babe, let's put her past behind us and live now. I know we could be happy deep because I love you. Can live without you. The future sounds a reason I know. At first, it was a game, dear desert painter. Yeah, I've gotten a chance to be around some some of the some of the elder masters and to, to see Roy Haynes and um, you know, to, yeah, I hung out with Herbie and Wayne once, uh, but just to just to be in the presence of of the creators of the music of Black American music, especially, um, teaches me a lot about what's important about the music. Are you able to articulate what you think that is? It's it's about being true to yourself. It's about honoring the fact that it's Black American music. And then putting love and attention into whoever it is that you are as a human being, um, as a, as 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 a musician, as a friend, the 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 masters they all have something in common, uh, which is that they they make you feel good, and they make you feel welcome, and they make you feel warm, and that 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 happens when you shed your ego, you know, and. Uh, that's the that's the entire similarity I see be- between all of them. Like, you know, they're so wise in their own egoless way, and, and that there are all these you know people to 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 look up up to. And through that, you know, either you deal with the history of the music, or you are a genius and you create something far in the future. You know, but for us, we've it's allowed me to to hear stories from Tootie Heath about playing with Thelonious Monk and mm-hmm. hanging out with the Baroness and mm-hmm. uh, playing with Lester Young and Lester Young stories and you know Percy Heath and the Heath Brothers and Coltrane and Charlie Parker and uh, Jimmy Cobb play with Billy Holiday. You know, to hear stories about those people. Yes. Uh, also, for me, helps me just when I sit down at the piano to 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 know that. You know, what I'm playing is in this lineage, and so I better check it out. It makes you feel directly connected to that experience, yeah, to that especially, history. Especially living here in Harlem as yes. well. Um, you know, what basically the mythology behind how I see Emmett's place is that it's a Harlem rent party 100 years later. Did you think of that when you started it, or did it I sort of think so. reveal itself yeah, to you? Yeah, it just was later that we're like, oh, we're in the yeah. roaring 20s again, and there's we're post-pandemic. and Literally... The 20s. We're back in the 20s. 
Yeah, and it was this crazy hundred year later cyclical thing. And I'm on Edgecombe Avenue. Duke Ellington lived five 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 Edgecombe Avenue, mm. about ten blocks up. Uh, Mary Lou Williams was um, up on Convent up the hill. Thelonious Monk would hang there all the time. Billy Holiday lived on this corner right here. Uh, Sonny Rollins, you know, is from Sugar Hill right up the block. It's kind of a crazy location um to be in you know where a lot of a lot of jazz musicians the highest concentration of jazz musicians maybe ever lived and to to be in in that too also makes me feel this this spiritual uh connection to to what it is that that uh that the music came from were you thinking about that when you got this apartment is that part of what drew you to harlem no i mean i was going to manhattan school of music in the area and and wanted to stay kind of nearby and a lot of my friends were living uptown at that time and it was just more, it just felt like the, the, the right place to be. And I've never left. <laughs> it's funny because the way you describe it in a way, it's like these events kind of made themselves clear to you. You didn't necessarily even know what you were doing. You fell into a thing and it was such a good fit for you, you know, that you end up maybe even feeling like a, I don't know, a custodian, a, a, a responsible caretaker of this legacy. Do you feel that way? And, and if so... Is that something you, that you feel more today than you did before the pandemic? I think yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that, that's, a, that's an amazing question. Um, I try not to think about that too much. I think you can't, really, um, you can't really move forward if you're too much thinking in the past and, and, and what's, what's happened, if it's a lot of weight to carry it on. It's like you know, you're born from your parents, and obviously you love your parents forever um and then you become your own person and you know some people fall stray very far and some people stray you know uh less far um but i think you know you just have to follow your 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 true self and say you know what who is it i want to be and i'll learn from the history mm -hmm. and you know it's great that it works out this way and it's meaningful I think as well. And, you know, you want to listen to the signs around you and, and, and the spiritual aspects of life um, can guide you in beautiful ways. What's your relationship like with practice? My relationship is better uh, from the pandemic with practicing. Um, but I think like any other relationship, you have, you, have, <laughs> you have push and pulls. And I spent a lot of my years practicing, you know, very hard. And now I'm on the, on the road more than anything else, which is like you, you only really get to play when you're performing. Um, so you have to kind of have it built into a warm up on your on your on your set, or use the set to help you practice, or practice in your mind, um, or just listen to music, or you know, for me, practicing can be just reading a book, or or you know, stimulating my mind in another way, where then I go back to create something on the piano and I can achieve something. Uh, and also, it's such a community music that um, I think that the ideas are are often best thought out when you're playing with other musicians so playing with other musicians is, is is a form of practicing in a big way can help you see yourself and then go back to work on things uh, but i'm always learning different repertoire and different pieces and over the pandemic i had time to 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 really dedicate to practicing every day um which is a routine that that when you're on the road you you don't really get access to um, especially as a pianist <laughs> you have to wait till the venue to to see your instrument um, but, but, uh, you know, practicing has been an important part of my life, you know, forever. Yeah. I think you do a lot of things or have done a lot of things. So, you know, I don't mean to assume that you were, you know, just sitting around waiting for Mondays during the pandemic, but on the other hand, it was, like it, it you, was like that for months. Yeah. 
For sure. I was waiting, I was waiting around and we would rehearse one time during the week with yeah. Russell and Kyle. Yeah. Um, at Kyle's house and have dinner, you know, we just kind of just used music to, to help us through this time as well. And wanted to welcome other people in, you know, if we were playing, let's play for the world. So like Russell was like, that's man, this is what we do, you know, yeah. in time of crisis, like you have to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that question, you know, it's not trivial. I mean, I think a lot of musicians and artists came to that realization that it isn't trivial what we do, that it actually matters. And maybe you always were aware of the audience. I don't know. I certainly in my life playing music have gone through periods where I'm not aware of the audience. I'm aware of my own needs and my own journey and my own desires. And there was a, an awakening for me during the pandemic where it's like, no, people, as you say, people need this. You know, it's, it is a thing that is healing and you happen to be ready to roll in shape to provide it. Yeah. And gratitude is a great way to, to tell someone what that is. It's like, we're grateful to play. Mm -hmm. Um, and when it's taken away, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're not able to gather and you're not able to feel those vibrations. I think a lot of people, um, were, were affirmed what you just said, mm -hmm. uh, just because it's, it, it was, it was rough without live music. And I think, you know, that was another part of what made Emmett's place mm -hmm. stick and for people to, to keep coming back because it was a close to live music experience with the community and everything just in this up, updated 2022, you know, yeah way now to 2020 yeah. <laughs> when, when it when it hit all we were missing were the vibrations but those are irreplaceable yeah um and so that's that's another thing that i learned is like you know live streaming and everything is great but the real vibrations of the instruments and the real yeah vibrations of the humans in the room are 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 the the real medicine <laughs> but i think part of what makes emmett's place work is you it's clearly the music and it's also just the energy and the feeling between all the players but like then there's you and you play this kind of unusual role of both host and leader and also accompanist and like you know you 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 have to walk this line between being the thing and providing the space for the thing or f facilitating the thing does that make any sense i mean i just don't i don't think just anybody could have made that work. I think a lot of your personality and your heart is in it as well. Definitely. And I think that I'm a meticulous worker and everything too. I don't think you can stream unless you're meticulous about details because there's a lot of little things that can go wrong during a stream. So, you know, to be an executive producer, I would, I would be, you know, over trying to fix the lag in the stream and Russell and Kyle would be playing the song, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing, but just kind of playing. And then I would be totally lost when I got back to the music and they would show me, all right, here's, yeah. here's yeah. one, you know, yeah. they like, they really were, were part of the show as yeah. well and made it, uh, you know, made it what it was, yeah. um, that, you know, we were able to do it together. Yeah. You know, I handled a lot of the, the, the technical aspects until, you know, those are, th those were taken, taken back. And now it's just, yeah. you know, hosting people and ordering dinner Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, trying to, you know, set up the back end of the stream and sending a newsletter in the morning. Um, the piano tuner gets here at four, 4 PM. That was the original question you asked is what is the day like? Yeah. What's the routine like? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, at about, uh, four, 4 PM or so the piano tuner will come over and work on the piano. And then, uh, Alex, the video man will, will arrive at about five and Kelvin, f the sound dude, five thirty forty five, And then the musicians at six, you know, we, we 
hang or talk it over. And then by the time Kyle shows up, Kyle, Kyle will get here by seven, maybe <laughs> have the drum set up by seven, uh, have a half an hour to rehearse and then, uh, you know, do, do the show and then eat dinner and then send everyone out of here. You order the same dinner every week? Yeah, we do Thai food. I knew is, it. I mean, that's a, what it is. That's the religion of jazz musicians is Thai food. That's yeah, you know, is. there's certain mythologies yeah. that, that you follow, as I was saying. And Thai food at a recording session is always standard good luck. There's enough stuff for vegetarians. And, and you know, everyone can kind of find a, a happy medium ground. And apparently it sparks creativity, which I've learned over the years. I mean, did you try Mexican one time or just like change it up one time? When it was just Kyle Russell and I, we would change it up every week and we'd say, what do you want to eat? And we'd all like do our individual orders. But now that there's just like guests and crew and and so much, I just just do a little Thai family meal, you know, big portions. And, and we'd have a little celebration after, after a show, little toast. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's been a great way to, keep it active and keep the community working and there's a little e- ecosystem that happens here and and as long as it's working i think it's good for a lot of musicians and and tech people mm-hmm. so now the world is opening again i mean it's interesting you describe new york as not being what it was before not being what it was when you were you know coming up you gauge uh, new york uh, how it is by what time smalls closes mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's how i always judged it you know before the pandemic is about 4 a.m and now it's about 2 i think so you could feel it you kind of went into hibernation as we all did but during that period while most people were just kind of hiding out in their houses and waiting for the world to open up you like your career changed your visibility changed. People literally spent hours in your house, you know, through the transmission of these videos. And now here you come out again into the world. Do you feel the world dealing with you differently? Are you dealing with the world differently? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm two, two and a half years almost since the pandemic started. So there's also been a lot of growth in that year. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of people grew in, in their own ways and, I think that for for me, you know, we we got a chance to play a lot of music in front of a lot of people, and the combination with that and me loving to work really hard, um, and keep a band on the road and keep everyone employed, um, which I think is the best way to keep a band together. You know, if everyone's getting paid, then the band stays together, and uh, you know, I think it's really important what Russell Hall and Kyle and Poole and I share. And to be able to to keep that going as long as possible, so uh, the pandemic kind of gave that little boost. So you know, I'm seeing if we can take it to different corners of the world, and it's been an amazing thing to see it take shape in other countries. Like we go to Budapest, we went to Budapest for the first time, and you know, it's packed room because people have seen the show. Uh, so it cut out a lot of years of 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 tour building and hustling and grinding in that regard, and uh, you know, hopefully elevate just some great musicians through that, uh, which is what the show was really supposed to be about is, is turning the world on to, to these amazing musicians who make up this city. I was telling you about earlier, all of these creative and, and diverse group of, of artists now. And it bonded you with your trio. I mean, that's another thing that it did. It bonded you musically and personally because you rode through this thing together. Yeah, definitely. We were brothers, you know, to, to leading up to that. We, uh, hustled in the in the Midwest, sleeping on people's couches for years, uh, trying to play any gig. Why specifically in the Midwest, or is that just an example of places that you hustled? You know, that's where you go when you're starting a career as a jazz musician in New York. You know, to to expand out slowly and drive out to the Midwest mm-hmm. and and play those uh, cities where you can drive mm-hmm. around to. It's it, 
it's it's the heart and soul of America in mm-hmm. there. You know what I mean? If you go to somewhere like Cleveland or mm-hmm. St. Louis or Indianapolis, Chicago, Detroit, of mm-hmm. course. The, Detroit is the, one of the best, biggest. Yeah, you best liked jazz it so much, cities. you made a record there. Well, I mean, it's a main spot for jazz. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the great jazz musicians ever came from Detroit yep. and Philadelphia. Yep. Um, and those are the two biggest. Yep. Um, jazz producers <laughs> in the country you know ron carter from detroit um, jimmy heath from philadelphia the, the, the jones brother family in, in detroit uh john coltrane benny golson from philadelphia and you go back and, tr- and forth between those places and yeah. find all of your favorites miles is from st louis so the, yeah there's a, there's a big history in the midwest and to to move the the music out there, I, f- I feel, is an important step for, for jazz musicians who want to go on the, on the road and present what they do. And so that was a, a, a big first stop, and we hit the Midwest, you know, once or twice a year still. Yeah. And have some great friends and great musicians, and it's the first place you go from New York. <laughs> You know, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I'm from the Midwest, and I always had told the story in the mirror image of it, which is that Midwestern rhythm section players in particular are important to the music. Chicago and Detroit and, yeah, certainly Philly, but, like, there's different feels and sounds and approaches that are developed in these places. Then it came to New York, or they, you know, they take it to the sort of the main stage. I like the idea that for coming from New York, you got to go back through the Midwest to get started. Yeah. Yeah, the grass is always greener. Yeah. Um, and what you said makes me think of Europe, too, because mm-hmm. um, Europe has different pockets of that as yes. well. A lot of jazz musicians move to, to Copenhagen, yes. to Paris, yes. um, Sweden, after, yeah. after they were fed up with what was mm-hmm. going on in, in America. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Tootie even has that story where he, he lived in Scandinavia for some time and had mm-hmm. a family over there yeah. and um, plays with Nils, Nils Henning mm-hmm. a bunch and uh, Kenny Drew lived over yeah. there and they would play as rhythm sections in other yeah. countries, having yes. a sound and, and cultivating a scene. There's a lot of recordings, a lot of videos from yeah. from, from uh, Jazz House Mamotra yes. in, in Copenhagen. Yeah. There's even a great one of Bud Powell. Um, and I feel like, you know, every every city that has some jazz going on with it can contribute something then to New York. Absolutely. And then, you know, as as a New Yorker, you have to give it back to those cities and, and help it foster. So that's, we love teaching, yeah. um, being, going to, to different schools, high schools, colleges, um, and and working with students and trying to, to give them that confidence. That flavor. Yeah, to practice and study the music. Do you think there's room for all the students you interviewed all these masters, right? I mean, you interviewed, you played with them, you befriended them. It was important for you to capture those stories. But I think that 70 years ago, I mean, the context around the music was completely different. There was no formal education, certainly not an education that upper-middle-class white families would spend a quarter of a million dollars to send their kids to partake in. And there were kind of more gigs, you know? What do you think of the context around the music today and all the students of the music? There's so many different types of music, um, especially when you think of, of the amount of producers that exist and people who make music on their computer and um, the amount of you know fame and fortune that's put into to all kinds of music, um, not even just acoustic music. 
um, which is, I think, just a just a, a matter of the times. You know, back back in the day, there there may have been more gigs, uh, but there are more musicians to play them now. Mm. Maybe there are more musicians and less gigs, yes. but more producers, and yes. there are different types of gigs you can play. Always, you know, people do weddings. People yeah, do. Sure. There's a space for everyone now. Where it's just a different time, yeah. like the same version of a thing that people are just trying to express themselves any way they can. Yes. And there are a lot of jobs within the music that open themselves up. I know people who love the music now who become social media people mm-hmm. in jazz. Um, and it's the way that they can enter the, and, and offer themselves to the community and be accepted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whichever way someone finds, I, I, yeah. I feel like it's, it, it's just a representation of, of them and who they want to be and what they want to say. You made a series of these records where you talk to the masters, you know, older players, you play with them, and then there's a little bit of conversation on, as well. The one that you did with Ron Carter, you do a version of Avino Malkenu that goes into uh, a, another tune, I forget what it's called, the Kaddish. Yeah, it's the Hatsi Kaddish, yeah. <laughs> an arrangement that uh, we made with Evan Sherman. Why'd you do I mean, what led you to play that tune with Ron Carter? So we were doing research on Ron and uh, the maestro, as we call him, and uh, realized that his full name was Ronald Levin Carter. And I was just perplexed as to why he had a middle name coming from the Levi tribe, um, which is a a highly Jewish name. And uh, and I asked him about it, and he told me that he had a bunch of brothers and sisters uh, in the the Great Depression and, and... their the family ran out of money to buy medication in Detroit, and they went to the Jewish pharmacist, Dr. Levi, and, and asked to explain that, and he gave them all the medication they needed, and they were so grateful um, that they named their next born after <laughs> Dr. Levin. Uh, so I thought that was a touching story, and, and Evan and I are both Jewish, and, and uh, you know, it was just an idea we had, and Evan came up with this this arrangement, and we were singing, he was singing, I remember him singing it at, at 3 a.m. in his apartment, and I, we were trying to figure it out, where to put the spaces and the extra bars, and like, really discover how Ron could slide in and slide out of different places, and, and, and really have him shine as well. Um, through this this ancient text that's been sang in many different ways, this is a version that Evan kind of remembered from Hebrew school that we fleshed out, uh, and that was a special moment too. And presenting it to him is, is a special. And anytime we play, we always we always play that, and it's a, uh, just a, a wonderful vehicle for us to come together on so many different levels, which I think is one of the things that music um, provides us. Have your ambitions changed? Have your desires changed in terms of what you're aiming for now? Like, did did the last couple of years reshape anything for you? You just want to hit the ground where you left off. I mean, what are you what are you hoping for now? You want to stay in this apartment? Coming out of the pandemic, I think I just want to remember the things that are most important 
in life. And I think that, um, that is, that is what the pandemic taught me, uh, took life away from a lot of people it made us stop and think, um, it gave me some time to breathe and, and reconnect with cooking and yoga and, and classical piano and reading books. And I studied chess as well. And for me, uh, it, it was, it was, it was a moment to as, almost as a wake up call, like, Hey, don't forget about, you know, the other things in life that make life life. It's not just about going on tour and hustling. And mm-hmm. then I look at myself now and I'm back on tour and hustling, hustling. Uh, but bringing a different mentality to it and trying to really heal the world um, in whatever way I can. Um, you see it as a form of healing, what you do. Yeah. I think that, you know, people have told us that they're, they're affected by it in a very um, positive healing manner. And uh, it just kind of reaffirms that, you know, when we go do out, go, when we go out and play for for audiences, you know, we have the power to to change their lives for for a moment or f- for a minute or for a week or for a year or for a lifetime. And sometimes there are those special moments where it happens, and you know, it's going to be a lifetime. Those are, I think, moments that that keep us going um, when we make those relationships with people that we know we're going to know for the rest of our lives through our travels, or mm-hmm. when we play that really, you know, special concert mm-hmm. and you can name a moment that happened in the concert, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating those memories, you know, bonding with audiences and, and developing relationships with, with different audiences too. So every time we go to Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. you know, we see our people there mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's, it keeps you grounded on the road. Um, as well, especially when you're traveling full time to have communities, places, you know, where, where you can contribute to and, and continue to build friendships and affect people positively. And I think that's that's a form of healing, especially in a world where there's so much going wrong. Yeah. You know, even if people tune out of all the noise and all the horrors and tragedies in the world for a few minutes, you know, that may be even healing. So everyone's healed on their own their own level and a, a big part of how I think about music is, is that people can see themselves through your music, especially the music we play, which, you know, a lot of times doesn't have words. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people really see themselves and, and discover things about themselves by listening to jazz. Um, Kyle, Kyle calls this kind of thing, blues therapy. He named his blues therapy. He names his track blues therapy. See, this is why being a musician is like being a therapist. It brings us back to your father's life choices. I dig that idea of blues therapy. You know, as you say, people, discover themselves as they confront the music you know you just do what you do people are going to bring themselves to it yeah i think so i mean i i have a therapist now yeah. and i think it's um you know it's an important yeah you know it can be an important yeah, thing if sure. you're pr- privileged enough to discover other sides of yourself yeah and i think that's what the music is about you know the music is about self-searching so you don't only want the good feeling you want you want that bad feeling too you want to get to the core and the root of the matter and that's probably what's most likely going to be affecting your artistry whether you know it or you don't but if you do know it then um it gives you this other opportunity to 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 experience it in 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 that way that i think that people relate to um, which is, you know, yes. when people relate to something, that's the therapeutic as- yes. aspect of it um, as well. You are very deliberate about answering questions. You are very careful about the things that you say. I mean, not not even hot button questions, but just like making sure that you're represented in a way that you're comfortable with. You've put in probably way more hours on your instrument than you have on answering questions on the record. But it's interesting to see an improviser, somebody who spends so much of their life dealing with just letting it flow 
and seeing you deal with this challenge of like answering questions and making sure that it's right. That's exactly right. And I think of it about it the same way. You know, I want to communicate a story or communicate a, a feeling of what drove me to do whatever I did. Um, and whatever, whatever I'm saying is a reflection on, on, on how I can tie everything together in the music as well. Um, and I think a lot of my favorite musicians also, they speak in cadence, um, or they, you know, Roy Haynes would kind of notice how many syllables were in a word and then tap them out after, after you said a certain word that reminded him of a rhythmic aspect of, of, of anything tap dance, you know, you don't usually do an hour interview speaking anyway you know I'll, I'll i'll speak to the reporter or something and they'll be writing an article about it but when you know the record's on and you're being recorded and the sounds are being recorded what does it sound like and uh it's hard to listen back to yourself anywhere but i bet it would be even harder for me to listen back to this i, I, I almost imagine i couldn't i think it's it's a skill that comes with with age and a skill that comes in in waves too sometimes i have more to say sometimes i have less to say uh, some some days you think you got something figured out, and then other days you you know you you, you know you know nothing, um, and I, I feel like it's like that on the instrument too, um, and part of the freedom on the instrument actually comes from a study of all of the styles of of piano really of jazz piano, um, and classical, but you know I love the early stride stuff, uh, I also love bebop and 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 post bop, uh, I love contemporary piano. And everything in between, you know, from Fats Waller to Keith Jarrett, and what do those things sound like as as ingredients in the in the cupboard when you take them out and you start mixing them together? Oh man, you know, to- different ways. So totally. Um, so that's the way I approach improvising and creating sets of music and 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 performing standards or original compositions even. And, uh, and, and I'm still working on that when it comes to the interview. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a lifelong thing, probably also. But, you know, that thing about taking in all those influences, you know, it reminds me of when I talked to Melissa Aldana earlier this year. She said, you know, I'm trying to bring Coleman Hawkins and Mark Turner into the same universe, knowing the whole history and then finding your place in it. But you that you have a kind of a responsibility to the whole history. And I also wonder, how is anybody supposed to find their sound if they're responsible also for being a historian our favorite writers are not necessarily literary historians they are writers you know our favorite chefs are not culinary historians they are the ones that found the ingredients around and invented some dishes well i think since this history is so tied to america yeah and to the story of america and oppression of a certain people that's what really makes it important to know the history and the different spirits. So if you're yeah. trying to play jazz and you never heard Louis Armstrong yeah. before, there's going to probably be a disconnect mm-hmm. there. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's, that's yeah. on the, on the grandest scale. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's a lexicon to be studied, you know, it's like, can you, can you, can you write a symphony if you've never, st- you know, analyzed the scores of all, all the yeah. great symphonies that came before you? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an art yeah. and, and it's also um, a language yeah. more than anything else. More, yeah, more than than all the other things, it's a it's a it's a language. Yeah, but but languages are often learned. Native language speakers don't actually formally often study the language that they learn to speak. They just pick it up. Exactly, and that's how it was for for thousands of years. Yeah, here it's, you know it's about the communication. And yeah, it's the same thing with the, with the music. It's yeah. like if you don't study the theory. You know, you can still be a great jazz musician. Yes. <laughs> and if you don't, if you don't know how to read and write, you can yeah. still be a great human. Yeah. 
Or a great storyteller. Yeah, a great storyteller, too. Yeah. Yeah, man. Everyone, everyone who comes in here says, after the show's done, like, oh, I wish I had another shot now that I know what it is. I feel that way about these conversations. Every time I walk out of one, I say, here's a list in my mind. Here's a list of the things that I didn't ask. Here's a list of the things I didn't say or I didn't respond to, you know. And yet I feel that conversation is like a, a form of playing. I mean, I feel like if we had played tunes, I would have been as present or tried to be as present as, as I try to be in these conversations, just see where it goes. And, you know, you said that thing about how from day to day, your relationship with your instrument is different. I feel the same way in conversation. And I feel like the one thing I know is that if I think I'm going to get anything in particular when I go into it, that's definitely not the thing I'm going to get. Because I have too much, I'm too attached to the outcome of getting it. It's like that with the recording studio as well. You just have to go in there and lay something down. Um, and I've learned from doing various sessions that, uh, and 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 Emmett's place too. It's like you think you're going to get something, and you get something completely different. Um, but even more so in the recording studio, there's like a difference for me between the recording studio, like going to Sear Sound downtown and cutting someone's album is a different experience than playing up here and doing a stream and playing some tunes and trying to bring some joy into the people in the room and uh, out in the world. And then I also feel this weird other um, uh, sensation when I'm playing a gig and it's not being recorded. Yes. And I'm just playing a gig and it's, and I know it's not going to exist forever. That is also um, a, a feeling that I've grown to appreciate now too, to tie it back into what you said with, with, with anyone can pull out a, a phone and record you, um, you know, whenever there's no recording going on, because a lot of times we'll play at clubs and, and festivals and stuff, and they'll have the recorders going too. And we love that because we do a show on Monday, and when I'm out of town, I can show us playing somewhere else. Uh, and there's, <laughs> a, there's a whole, you know, yeah. there's a whole kind of uh, creativity, yeah. you know, consistency thing uh, to that too. And consistency is really the word that, that ties it together. Um, I feel like it's hard to be consistent over a long period of time. Um, you know, if you ask a, any, any athlete or dancer, you know, what their, what their goal is, you know, now that they've achieved this, it's, you know, it's to, 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 to be able to keep doing it Yes, is, is one of the rarest things in the world. And that's why old masters are so important. They, they were consistent with it their whole lives. And, um, and that's a rare thing that makes someone special to be that consistent through, through, through so long. Yes. Well, that's why I think the Monday, the practice of Monday nights, not the practice like rehearsal, but the, the, the regular practice, like a meditation practice or a yoga practice or any other steady, consistent practice was so powerful. And I actually think that was a big part of what was so inspirational about what you were doing was we're going to be here on Monday. We're going to be here again. And, you know, now you're dealing with the realities of like, we can't be here every Monday now. Like we, I got too much going on and people are back out on the road and I, you know, you, it's like you, so how do you keep that consistency if it's once a month or whatever? Like, I think that's the question for you. You got to give it up for Cal Ripken Jr. Who played the most consecutive games of all time in the major leagues. Um, you know, it's a hard thing in, yeah. in, in, in any place to keep showing up and playing, especially yeah. as you, you get older too. Yeah. Um, and, and to see, you know, the level of strength that it, that that's required for, yeah. for someone like Houston person to get a, yeah. to get a, a, you know, drive to the airport, uh, park his car, get on a flight, uh, take a cab from the airport, you know, rest up and then play two sets that night till one in the morning. Yes. You know, that requires a certain, certain, uh, 
deep strength and belief in what you're doing to to achieve and Houston does it at 88 years old. Yes. Uh that's that's an inspiration to me. But that's a commitment to a thing that's like I'm going to do this until I die. I mean the, the message that is being sent at 88 years old is I have one plan and I intend to keep it. Like I'm going to do this until I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I guess some people retire and some people want to play forever yeah. and um you know, I'd, I've been around musicians who want to play till the very end, and and that right there is is such a beautiful moment. And to sh- and to share a moment with somebody who's ninety years old when I'm when I was twenty five, yeah, uh, really, uh, I think made me into the musician yes. that that I am and that I wanted to be, uh, which is to understand that 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 journey and understand that it's not easy. But if you come out with this attitude yeah. or you come out with this belief or you come yeah. out with this strength or you come out with this knowledge. You know, you started young and you've had a pretty fast ascent in terms of like being an established, you know, contemporary voice today. This seems like a highly charmed existence. On the other hand, I mean, do you ever think about like what does a future look like? Like, you know, you grew up in large part in Montclair, New Jersey, the suburbs, like stable, normal family people. Like, do you, do you want to stay in Harlem your whole life? Do you see what it would mean to grow older as a jazz musician? Like, you know, I guess you had a lot of jazz musician, older mentors that could show you, how do you do it? Like, how do you go through your whole life doing it? The thing you learn from, from, from your mentors is that every, everyone has a different way of doing it. And everyone takes a different amount of time to figure that out. Once you figure it out, then you realize you've figured nothing out. <laughs> That's what I think that I've, that I've yeah. learned, from, which yeah. is another common thread from all, yeah. all of the, the older people in my life. My grandmother lived to be 100. Mm-hmm. I've had some, some wisdom, just if, if nothing else, by time on the planet um, in front of me. Tootie wants to be our friend and wants to yeah. hang out with us and wants to joke around with us. Yeah. Ron Carter you know, is more, is more formal and he wants yeah. to teach us yeah. and he wants to, uh, to, hmm. to, to love us and nurture us in a, in a different way, more of a fatherly way. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's, or a grandfatherly way. Well, they all want to nurture in that way. Yeah. They, and they, all the masters have a different, um, a different device that they are able to communicate through. And for the Heath brothers, it was humor. Um, it wasn't a device. It was more of a way of life and mm-hmm. a, way, a way that they lived. They were, they were, they were the funniest guys in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of Benny Golson, he was very serious. Yes. Um, he showed you, uh, how to, how to, how to always, you know, be strong and serious, um, mm-hmm. and, and creative, you know, he wrote the craziest, uh, tunes that, yeah. that people had never seen anything yeah. like before. And, um, you know, to be around him and to watch him improvise at 89 years old while we're on the road and come up with something new. Th- those were all moments yeah. where, where I, where I was like, okay, this is closer to connecting everything I've, I've, I've ever learned, um, into, into one thing. And, you know, the seriousness, the humor, the, um, the, the, the overall strength and, and, um, beauty in every way. And I think that I'll know when it's time to leave Harlem and time to move on. It's a beautiful thing to live here, um, but and some people spend their entire lives here. Yeah. And there's a, there's a community yeah. um, here and in New York City, and you can go to any jazz club in the world. Um, but I think if if it's ever time for me to go, I'll I'll, I'll know. Yeah. Um, and I'm lucky to travel a lot too. So, uh, you know, when I when I 
I'm able to get away to a to another spot that I want to check out or be in. I spend some time in Miami sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, I know Kyle has aspirations to go to to live in Europe or maybe Paris. There's a, there's a lot of opportunities to live other places and to contribute to the world. And especially live streaming taught us that we can do that from anywhere. Yes. I always thought it would be cool to move somewhere with the band um, and continue our thing in a different city. The monkeys of jazz. You know, obviously it takes a tremendous amount to uproot. And um, I'm pretty happy now. And, and just yeah. uh, it's it's a time for, for my community to be in Harlem and yeah. to be doing what we're doing. And I'm sure in a few years all the rest of our friends will have kids and, <laughs> and move on. Um, but I, I think, you know, just one, one step at a time and just see how, uh, how everything unfolds and continue to just, you know, try to stay productive and stay open and stay learning and, uh, help the people I can along the way. Emmett Cohen, thank you for staying open and productive and learning with me today. I really appreciate you opening your home to me and, um, sharing some, some wisdom. Yeah, Leo, thank you so much. It's great to uh, to finally get the chance to talk to you, and I uh, hope we can do this again someday. There he was, my friends, Emmett Cohen. He has indeed stayed open and productive. Here he is behind me playing during the most recent installment of Live at Emmett's Place, and he continues to make more. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.